Well, hello everyone. Welcome to Foster Source. This is suicide, self-harm, and chronic risk, and it's being taught by our friend Aaron Ralston. Aaron, thank you so much for being here today. We're so excited to have you. Uh, I'll let you introduce yourself and take over here in a minute, but Aaron and I both just wanted to thank you for coming and just uh, reassure you that this is a this is a hard topic. This is, it could be a triggering topic. It could make you uncomfortable and that's perfectly normal. And you should kind of lean into what you're feeling and do what you need to do to keep yourself well and comfortable. Um, you can probably word this better than I can, Erin, but you know, if you need to step away, if you need to take a break, please do. Um, again, feel free to chat in the chat, submit questions through the Q&A. Thanks so much for being here and take it away. Awesome. Let me get this PowerPoint going and then we'll jump right in. Um, and yes, I think we'll, we'll repeat many times throughout this period and we'll have a break in the middle too. But if you need to step away, um, whatever you need to do, we're going to leave that up to you. And it is going to be available as we're recording on demand. So if you miss something, you can just go back and watch it later. Don't worry about um, getting everything right the second, um, which is going to be especially important because it's a lot of information. This is all of our basics. And the whole goal today is to get a really good idea of how uncomfortable we are with the thought of suicide and, and supporting kiddos who are having thoughts about suicide because the, the risk and the rates are increasing with our youth. And so we wanna understand really where we're at so that we can be a supportive link for those folks. You're not the professional and that's appropriate. You're not meant to be the professional, you're meant to be the foster care provider. And that gives you a really unique position to be able to, to intervene and connect, be the connecting point for resources and for support. So we know that um, youth rates of suicide are on the increase, but we also know, and I'll show you some research as we get into this, um, that suicide and self-harm has a higher impact on children and youth that are in the foster care system. Many of the risk factors and many of the um, things that would increase someone's prevalence of suicide are uh, present in these kiddos. So uh, first, I'm Erin Ralston, as Renee said. Um, I'm the licensed counselor here in the state of Colorado. I'm originally from the Northwest, so these really hot days, I'm really not sure what to do with myself, but um, I came to graduate school here in Denver and then never left, um, fell in love with the area. I work primarily in crisis and post-disaster. Um, and then when I settled, I was working internationally. And then when I settled uh, and decided to stay, um, I've been with Aurora Mental Health and I run our Connect to Care program, which is our access clinic where anyone that wants to access services within Aurora Mental Health starts. Um, and I'm also our suicide prevention coordinator. Um, I. Uh, my specialty is around chronic risk and suicidal clients, um, but I have a, a special place in my heart for foster care. My wife and I actually adopted our son um, through Kinship Foster with, um, he was an, an ICPC case. He was born in Hawaii and it was so very complicated. So um, it was it was quite a trip and something that I um, I learned through that, how many gaps there are in the system and that something like foster source being available is such a benefit. So this is my way of, of giving back to that just a little bit. 
So here are our objectives for the day. Really simple, just so that you know where we're going. We're gonna look at risk factors. We're gonna look at warning signs. We're gonna look at really specific ways, like the actual words to use to ask these questions. Um, we're gonna look at how to get help and how to encourage someone to get help um, and kind of what your role is in that versus what my role is as a professional. We're gonna look at referral sources. And then we are gonna to touch on the basics of a mental health hold, just in case you have a, a, a kiddo in your home who is placed on a mental health hold at some point. I like to start with this quote because um, we are really all connected. Um, we are, as humanity, linked together in ways that make sense and no, don't make sense, right? And there's such a far-reaching nature in our ability to impact each other. When we talk about suicide prevention, we really like to say that it's everyone's business. It's everyone's job. Everyone has a role in what that could look like because you could be the person that notices. And if not you, then who? And we don't necessarily know who that other person would be, right? We don't know if there's another person. And so really making sure that we feel confident and comfortable to step in to this really uncomfortable topic and be supportive. Um, most youth, children and youth who are having thoughts of suicide, they're not self-referring for treatment. They're not going, hey, can I go to therapy, please? They don't necessarily know what those options are for them. Certainly when they're in crisis, they're not going to know what those options are for them. So we want to be the person to, to connect them. So no one is alone. Again, we're not expecting you to be the professional, um, but you are intimately connected to this. So here's where we're going to go. Um, really how we, how we think and feel about suicide, not, um, we're not gonna start with the facts, we're gonna start with our assumptions uh, so that we're ready to look at facts. We're gonna look at some of the statistics for primarily Colorado. Um, we're gonna look at the role of foster care. We're gonna look at some risk assessment, uh, mental health holds, like I mentioned, and our resources. So knowing what you know and what you don't know is absolutely the most important place to start. Um, assumptions and biases are things that we can be, of course, very aware of, but they can also be things that we are less aware of and have more of a subtle impact on how we interact with someone. It could be impactful of our tone of voice. It could be impactful of our suggestion about the other person getting help or not getting help or even just using the word help in general. Um, so I'm gonna put up a few questions. I'm gonna give you a minute. You can throw some things in the chat if you want. You're also more than welcome to keep those things to yourself, write it on a paper. Um, and we're only gonna take a couple minutes here, but as the presentation will be available, please feel welcome to go back and think through these things more if, the, um, if that's a good fit for you. So we're gonna start here. I feel blank when someone tells me they're thinking about suicide. So you're welcome to use the chat or um, make some comments on a piece of paper, jot down some notes. We have scared, curious, lost, mm -hmm. ill-equipped to help, unsure, worried, concerned, activated, mm -hmm. uncomfortable,
that's a pretty normal range. I'm going to just say even so, and I do these trainings for clinical providers, for therapists, and we get that same sort of range of emotion in response to thinking about suicide. I'm going to put up a few more questions. We'll spend a little more time on this next slide because it has quite a few different questions. Someone says empowered because they're asking for help. I love that. Oh yes, definitely. That's, that's, that's the goal, right? Is that, that is. eventually mm -hmm. we, we feel empowered to help instead mm -hmm. of like most of us feel is yeah, yeah. scared. And we want to have a good balance of scared and empowered because if we feel entirely comfortable, then we're saying that suicide is normal and okay. And we don't want it to be normal and okay, because we really want to be in a position where fewer and fewer people feel that way. Good point. Yes. So as how, you, how do you want oh, us to do this one, Erin? I mean, people are more than welcome to put things in chat. I really just want everyone to take a minute and kind of think about where they, where they feel and how they feel about these things. And then we'll walk through them. So I believe that there is or isn't a solution for suicidal thoughts. I believe that death by suicide is or isn't a choice. Or were we going to go through these individually, Erin? Do you want to go through individually? Um, sure. Let me go ahead and do that. Sure. Um, so when we're looking at the, I believe there is and isn't a solution for suicidal thoughts. Um, that's a really, there's no right or wrong answer. It really, it is just a perspective that we have, um, as a provider of someone who does treatment related to thoughts of suicide, I think there is a solution. Um, but I know that when we're in despair and we have sort of tunnel vision there, it doesn't always feel like there's a solution. I believe that death by suicide is, or isn't a choice. Um, that one again, controversial across the area, um, really they're based on our philosophy and how we feel about people and how we feel about mental health. Um, when we say there, that it, there is a choice and there is a solution, we're actually being more hopeful about possible recovery. And that can really set the person up to be more successful. Um, I would guess that some of you on today know someone who's died by suicide or know someone who knows someone who's died by suicide. It's pretty common. Um, we have seen with the prevalence of the internet, uh, a, an increase, especially among our teenagers who know someone who's made a suicide attempt or had thoughts about suicide. Um, I have or haven't worked with someone who's had a mental health crisis. That's going to be particular to you. Um, if someone really wants to die by suicide, there is nothing or something we can do about it. Um, we like to believe that there is something we can do about it. When someone feels that there's nothing we can do, then we really want to look at their own bias about getting help because part of what we do as the person coming alongside is hold some of that hope and hold some of the intention to get help for the person who can't see it. So if we also can't see it, that makes it much harder to hold it for that person. Um, I want you to keep a note about that last question. So if I learned more about blank, I'd feel more comfortable. And we're going to come back to that at the end as well. So let's like, look at some. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I like, I, I like some of the things people are saying here, like they, they, they believe there's a solution, but it's not a single solution. It's either mm -hmm. wraparound services or it's a process, mm -hmm. right? It's not just a, a switch that we flip. 
Yeah, it's very much not. And every person's solution is going to look a little different, right? Which is why it's so important that we have really comprehensive care available so that we can create a plan that works for each person. Uh, let's look at some, some, of, some of the statistics. We're definitely not going to look at um, everything because then we would be here all day. Um, these are all things that were pulled from uh, the CDC as well as um, Mental Health America's website. Um, they keep the most up-to-date statistics. Um, Colorado is commonly double the national average for rates of suicide across all age groups. Um, we're slightly higher for youth 12 to 18. Um, so when we look at um, the state as a whole, it's a, it's a particular problem that we want to be paying attention to. The Office of Suicide Prevention has a number of um, programs right now, and one of their next fiscal year goals is, is to target youth suicide. Um, in the, the date range from 2016 to 2018, we actually saw a 58% increase in teen suicide, um, which is uh, the largest increase of any state in the nation and puts us at 45th worst for youth suicide rates, which is um, not a number we like, of course. Um, in, so in 2016, we had um, close to 1,200 suicide deaths. And in 2017, it was um, about 25 higher than this. So it has consistently been going up. Erin, um, here's a question that came in. Sorry to please. interrupt. Is it, nope, true that, is it true that the Colorado suicide rate is high because so many people move here expecting their lives to change and that the high rate normalizes it? I have never actually heard that. Um, so that would be new information for me. Um, I know that uh, altitude has been researched as a component, as well as uh, our regulations around firearms. Um, more often than not, and it's on this slide, almost half of Colorado suicide deaths are by firearm because we have um, more and easier access to firearms. And because that is a more lethal method, we have more, um, more deaths to attempts as a ratio. Um, so, I have not heard the moving thing though. That would That's be an interesting. interesting thing to look at. A lot of people do, you know, come on, it's a great place to live, right? Of course, <laughs> of course. Well, and, and then they legalize, you know, cannabis. So yeah, there's yeah. a whole lot of other things. And I, I'm going to make a look, uh, make a note and do some research on that because um, that would, that's new information for me, if it's that's true. Interesting. Someone yeah. was asking, so in each state, if there's records as far as what their gun legislation looks like and what their suicide rates look like, do you know? Not every state will have that, but most do. Um, the uh, federal, so the um, Mental Health America, and then there's a state chapter for each, tries to track all of that. Um, and some states are less um, they just don't have necessarily legislation, gotcha. um, but there is a there is a correlation between um, sort of easier access to firearms and being having higher rates of suicide. Interesting. I'll tell you what surprises me on this is the gender breakdown. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is actually explained by method. Um, so women actually attempt suicide more often than men, but they use methods that are. Um, cleaner in a way they don't want to they don't want to put anyone else out they don't want to do something that is there's going to be a mess um, which is kind of 
graphic to think about, but um, more often they'll do something like overdose or uh, carbon monoxide type poisoning. Um, men are more likely to use a firearm. So the, the lethality of those attempts is much higher, even though they're attempting at a lower rate. Wow, that's interesting. Okay. So, yeah, so in Colorado still ranks up there in the worst states, there's actually, um, I'm gonna go back a slide and show you the, so right through the middle here, the sort of mountain range of states, there tends to be higher rates than average through this area. Um, and they've been doing a lot of research on altitude to see what the hmm. connection is. Um, and they haven't been able to quite get to what that might be, but um, it's, it's underway. So. Well, and someone was saying too that a few years back, Colorado was ranked 49th in the country for mental health services. Do you know where, yep. where we're, how we're, we're looking little, now? We've gotten a little better. Um, for adults right now, we're about 40. For youth, we're still at 42 or 43. Um, so it's improved. And um, the Aurora Theater shooting after actually was quite a catalyst in that because our comprehensive crisis services were all put in place after that event, um, which has greatly increased our access. Um, so here's our youth rates. This is up through 2019. Um, we haven't had yet our 2020 data, but it, uh, it has increased again based on what we already do know, uh, especially the, the impact of COVID. COVID has really isolated a lot of our youth um, and what we're seeing is that preventative services and proactive care have actually been on the decrease and the need for crisis services has been on the increase. So people are waiting longer and trying to get through what's going on. And then they're hitting that crisis point and needing crisis intervention. Uh, Children's Hospital Colorado last week put out a, a memo that basically said there's um, a state of emergency in youth mental health. And that is because we're seeing such a, a shift towards crisis need. Well, and I wanna to mention too, specifically regarding youth, um, we're thrilled today to actually have um, Babette Kanakari listening in on our, on our class. She mm -hmm. is the founder and the director of debrisproject.org. And I'll, oh, I'll go ahead and link that in the, in the chat. But her daughter, Brianna, died when she was 12 years old from playing the choking game. Mm -hmm. which is then uh, categorized as a suicide, right? Mm -hmm. um, Brianna wasn't having suicidal ideation. Um, it was a terrible, terrible result of that risky teen behavior. Mm -hmm. um, does, how, what does that, how does that play into rates for teens? So it, it, plays into the attempt rates because we see that impulsivity being impactful of their ability to stay safe. Um, the death by suicide rates are really tied more to what method people are using and whether uh, that is a lethal method. We do see with younger kiddos, we had an eight-year-old in last week, um, they tend to just use less lethal means because that's what they know, um, which is beneficial because then more often we can get them into treatment. They aren't dying at the same rates, um, which we appreciate. Um, and we'll talk more about the impulsivity and the teen pieces. So I'm going to hold the rest of that till we get farther in. Um, so right, let's look at some definitions. And then I want to kind of dig into some models of suicide that are really um, helpful to understand why, why people get to feeling this way. 
So definitions are super simple. Suicide is the act of intentionally causing one's own death, self-harm being the act of harming oneself. Um, we'll talk about it more as we get in, but self-harm can be completely independent of any thoughts of suicide. We call that non-suicidal self-injury uh, in order to differentiate it from any sort of suicide attempt. Uh, it can be clear that those are different. It can also be not clear at all. And teens especially can go back and forth uh, based on frontal lobe development and hormones and everything else they have going on. It can be hard to tell. They also may just not know, which can be when we get into sort of risk assessment, when the answer to a question is, I don't know, more often than not, they don't actually know because they don't have the link made yet. And we can help them build some of that insight and some of those links. The continuum of risk is super helpful. And I wanna explain this because um, with foster care, especially with the kiddos that have been through trauma and all these other risk factors we're gonna talk about, they may have what appears to be higher risk. So there's two lines on here, one being specifically our chronic risk and one being our imminent risk. So chronic risk is the accumulation of risk factors over time, more trauma, more impact of their own mental health, or other people's mental health, um, events that happen at school like bullying, all those things build up over time. Chronic risk can't go down. So let's say, obviously, when you're born, it starts at very low. Over time, it's going to increase. It's never going to go backwards. Imminent risk, however, is the snapshot of what, you, what the risk is in that exact moment. So it isn't necessarily accounting for anything else, but like just today, right now, what is going on for that person? And if we're doing a really thorough assessment, we're looking at both because someone could have really high chronic risk and really low risk today, but that doesn't mean they don't need any intervention or don't need to be set up to have a plan in place for if they have crisis. That's so interesting. And I'm guessing the interventions look differently for, on each they spectrum. Do. They definitely do. Yeah. And we want to really tie them together because chronic risk is something where insight and knowledge in the person themselves about those factors is the most helpful. Imminent risk is where we look at safety plans and how other people can be supportive to help that person get through that brief moment till they're back towards their baseline. Um, and depending on that person, those plans could look different, right? We'll talk about safety plans as we get in uh, a little bit farther. Um, and you know the interaction changes for each person. Each person's risk factors are different. Um, we have a few consistencies and there are a few kind of umbrella ideas that we look at. And I wanna explain um, the interpersonal theory of suicide. It sounds so fancy, but Thomas Joyner who uh, works out in Florida is a suicidologist, researcher and a professor. Um, one of the sort of leaders in the field that we're looking at for research. And his theory of suicide is especially helpful when we look at these risk factors and when we're looking at how our foster kiddos feel, because we're looking at the overlap of isolation, burdensomeness, and capability. So isolation and burdensomeness are common when kiddos are not 
in the, well, it's common regardless, but it also is something that's going to come up more for a kiddo who's not in their birth family especially if that kid has been moved around, they've been in group homes, they're having just a really hard go, feeling alone and feeling like you're a burden is going to be more common. So desire for suicide, when those two things are high, feeling alone and feeling burdened, desire for suicide goes up. Desire is specifically the thought of and want to no longer be present with. Desire doesn't necessarily mean that someone will hurt themselves. Capability is the piece that increases that likelihood that someone would die. Um, it really is the combination of these three that gets us those either deaths by suicide or lethal attempts. Um, the, other, the other term for this sort of isolation feeling, we call it thwarted, thwarted belongingness. And, you know, the attempt to be connected and yet it's not quite possible for that person. Um, and the thwarted, I think, is especially helpful because it gives us that indication. And in most of these cases, they are trying to connect. They are trying to build relationship. They may or may not know how, um, and there may or may not be someone there to build relationship with, but they certainly want to do that if it's possible. Um, one other really helpful model, and I think this is especially helpful when we're looking at the role of foster care is the ecological model. And this really, um, it's not an explanation for, you know, why people would attempt suicide, but it is a, a model we look at specifically in prevention. And our goal is to build both intervention, prevention and intervention in every single one of these levels so that we're better able to intervene when there's risk or a need for support. If all of these levels are working in concert together, we have a much, um, much more likely possibility of an intervention rather than something that we're doing as a postvention or as an after attempt intervention. So for those of you on the call, I'm sure you fit into many of these different categories depending on who the kiddo is, right? Um, and we wanna really solicit all these different areas when we're building any sort of plan for a kid. Um, I wanna show you the iceberg analogy as well um, because it really gives us a better idea of numbers. So when we talk about deaths by suicide, um, I used example numbers. So these aren't actually accurate numbers now, it's, it's quite a bit higher. Um, but if we have, let's say we have 500 deaths by suicide for a year, the number of medically treated deliberate self-harm, so let's say someone harmed themselves on purpose and received treatment of some kind, this could be in the hospital, this could be outpatient, doesn't matter, some kind of treatment bumps us up to about 12,000. The number of people then who aren't treated and had some sort of deliberate self-harm would be at about 60,000. So we can use this equation depending on what our rates are um, kind of in the state or in the nation to see how dramatically that increases. And suicide is underreported because it's often considered something else. Um, my grandmother, when my dad was young, died in a single person car accident. And they didn't, they ruled it um, an automobile 
death, whatever that's called. Um, but we know it was a suicide and that she died by suicide because that was what she intended to do. Um, but even today, and that was years and years ago, even today, those are underreported. So let's look specifically at the puzzle piece that you all are, which is my favorite thing. You're unique because your role is familial and non-familial at the same time. And it doesn't have that same power dynamic that a professional role does or a counselor or somebody at the hospital, right? The modeling in your, your part of your role can be more significant. The time you spend with these kiddos is significant. And that is a line of defense that I think is underutilized in a lot of these prevention plans. Um, I'm going to pause for a second, too, because as caring and empathetic people, you've, you've stepped into caring for, for someone outside of yourself. Um, often people who are more empathetic are less likely to take good care of themselves because they're helping others. And so it's really important, and I know we talked about this at the beginning, um, but to be mindful of the stress and the strain, to be mindful of um, any transfer of that trauma that the kiddo's experienced and the crisis the kiddo's experiencing and how that impacts you as a person. Um, I was very appreciative to hear again um, the reminder from Renee that there is counseling available for you, and I really highly encourage you to utilize that. The more preventative we can be, the better, right? Our goal is to be able to sustain over time and not ourselves feel like we're in a point of crisis. So I might say it like 17 more times over the course of this training. Um, you're really not in this alone. Um, you're never alone. Your primary responsibility, of course, is to your kiddos and your family and your friends and to get everyone kind of connected to resources. But if you don't take care of yourself, that's not going to work. So keep taking care of yourselves well. Um, I really, I want us to look at Reason's Swiss cheese model. And I always include this because I think it is so fun at the same time as a really good visual. So today, I'm maybe some of you like cheese, maybe some of you don't, but today you are all cheese, okay? So every single person is pieces of cheese. Our goal is to line up all of these different people, all of these different professionals, everyone that has a role in this kiddo's life, because our ultimate goal is that we catch everyone and all of our strengths and all of our abilities and all of our weaknesses all line up to where we can hopefully catch every kiddo coming through the system and be able to create some sort of prevention for them along the way. So if you're a visual person, this is a really good visual um, to keep in mind. Now we're going to jump into risk assessment, okay? So we're going to talk super basics. Um, again, you're not an expert. You're not supposed to be an expert. You're not supposed to be a clinician. And um, even in the clinical world, we don't ask for providers to handle any of these things alone. We always encourage someone to loop in their supervisor, loop in someone that can be helpful for them. And I, I would encourage the exact same thing for you all. Um, and part of looping those people in is knowing who they are in advance. So having that kind of planned out about who you can call and talk to and ask for help. Um, think about that for a quick second. Who would you call? Who is your person? 
Um, if you don't have someone come to mind, that's your homework is to kind of figure out who that would be um, and have a few layers of defense, I think is really helpful. Um, and I'll give you some crisis resources too that are outside of probably your network, but think about who would be in your network too. Planning so for ahead. ourselves or for helping our child? Both. Okay. I so mean, like, primarily helping the child, but you should have that for yourself as well. Gotcha. Yep. Part of why we do that is so that we are allowed, we're able to respond more calmly in the moment. When we're anxious, when there's a crisis, we don't think as well as when we do kind of on a normal day. So if we put those things in place, we have it written down even, all we do is have to pick up that paper and follow the, follow the steps and call the people. And that can help us really get through those moments with less panic. When we're looking at risk, we want to find out what risk is there, really determine the level of imminent risk. So what kind of intervention we need to put in place right now to ensure safety. And then there's some planning that we wanna do. We're gonna keep it as simple as possible. Um, one of the things you may hear if you have kiddos in treatment is doing safety contracts. Um, I'm gonna say this in the nicest way possible. Safety contracts are not effective. So if you're working with someone who is using safety contracts, I want you to seriously think about whether or not you need to loop someone else in. Um, can you and tell I us say, what that even is? What is a safety contract? I would love to explain that, yes. So when a, when a kiddo, when a person in general is thinking about suicide, we usually make a safety plan. We're gonna walk through all the parts of a safety plan, but it's really the things that person can do when they're in crisis to get through that moment and to feel safe. Who they call, their coping skills, their distractions, all those things on, in one place so they can just pick it up and follow the steps. Historically, we've done uh, mental, mental health and psychologists went through this period of time where they had clients agree not to harm themselves and then sign the paper with the provider and say, until I see you at our next session, I, I won't hurt myself. I won't kill myself. And then they would sign it and the provider would sign it. That would be a safety contract. Uh, research has shown that there is no effectiveness in that and actually that they can be more harmful than helpful. So when we're doing safe, a safety plan, great. We love safety plans. We love to be prepared. If we're requiring someone to agree to not harm themselves and sign it, let's walk away from that because that's not going to be helpful. It really ties them into making uh, actions for themselves and doing things for themselves because of their relationship with us, which may or may not have any meaning. Um, most people are not keeping themselves alive because of their therapist, um, certainly not because of a doctor they just met at the hospital. So we want to make sure that we're looking at the reasons for living that fit best for that person. So let's start with risk factors because we need to know what we're looking for. And go ahead and put some things in chat and we'll have uh, Renee or Lindsay shout them out at us. What do you think puts someone at higher risk for suicide? Substance abuse, depression, high ACEs. Mm -hmm. ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. 
Um, No connection with other people or community, lack of community support, low Mm -hmm. self-esteem, racism, Mm -hmm. trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All of those things. History of suicide in the family. That is interesting. That is true. Yep. Somebody knows a little bit more than, uh, (laughs) than they let on, but um, friends who are considering it possibly. Yes. Mm -hmm. So let's look at these a little closer. You named a ton of them. So family history of suicide, um, true. It's absolutely true. There's a genetic component to some of our risk factors that we don't quite have a handle on yet, but that does exist. It also, uh, would indicate that the person has an understanding of suicide as an option, uh, if they've interacted with it in the, in the past. Um, and I will, add there are there's only one risk factor that we've unequivocally linked to higher risk of a of an attempt only one which is a previous suicide attempt for that person themselves everything else is person dependent and really builds that chronic risk but it's not like a a math problem where like seven of these and you're at x amount of risk it's really just our understanding of the different factors that people have experienced in their lives that lead them to feeling hopeless. So history of a mental disorder, certainly depression is one of those disorders that we look at, but also something like a bipolar disorder, which um, is uh, depression and uh, mania or manic experiences. Um, his, uh, history of alcohol or substance abuse, feelings of hopelessness, impulsive or aggressive tendencies. Impulsivity, we worry about a lot with teens because um, it gives us less time for them to stop themselves before they make an action. Cultural or religious beliefs um, really can fall into both a risk factor and a, and a buffer. We'll talk about buffers in a few minutes, which are positive and protective factors. But if you've been isolated from your cultural community or religious community because, um, you know, maybe you're you're gay or um, something has happened and they've basically shunned you, that can be a a risk factor for kiddos. Uh, Isolation, certainly barriers to treatment. We see that one often. Any sort of loss, and that could be loss of a person, loss of a job, loss of a family, loss of a home, loss of a dog, a pet, that's pretty common too. Chronic disease or disability, uh, access to lethal means. The more access you have to a higher lethality means, the more likely that you would die in a suicide attempt. Stigma, uh, prejudice, discrimination, certainly. Um, Someone mentioned racism, which is important. Um, uh, Socioeconomic status as well. Um, age, we see a higher risk between the ages of 15 and 24, and then specifically for men over the age of 55. Uh, White men over the age of 60 actually have a surprisingly high rate of suicide. Um, When we're talking about chronic disease and disability, things like epilepsy, MS, spinal cord injury, Alzheimer's, TBI, uh, which is traumatic brain injuries, um, any sort of Uh, Chronic pain also could be uh, debilitating. Uh, Available and quality social supports also could could tie into this. Um, We think about we think about moving towards an attempt as a continuum. So we we think about it as um, 
you know, about 24% of the individuals who think about suicide would transition to seriously thinking about suicide and making a plan. 72% of those persons planning would move to actually plan a first attempt. Among those who make their first attempt, 60% would happen in that first year. Um, and 90% of unplanned attempts would happen within that first six months. So we look at pretty much there being a, a set period of time that we need to be intervening. Two questions so, have come in, Erin. Please. Um, and it looks like you've already answered one because someone is asking about brain injuries. Mm -hmm. um, is that a documented factor? You said it is. This person, I, I only knew TBI. This one says CTE. Do you know what that is? I do not. I'm not. Amy, a if you want to put that in the chat, specifically what that is, we'd have mm -hmm. be happy to dig into that. Another yeah, person says, how do you handle a kid misusing a safety plan mm -hmm. to try, for example, to get more screen time? I need more Roblox or I'm going to. We're going to talk about that when we get to safety plan. So we'll gotcha. hold on to that question Super. for a little bit longer. Um, but I will add with the brain injury piece, we don't have any uh, research hasn't gotten as far as to say X brain injury does this thing, but what we know is that brain injury as a whole causes the person's normal social engagement to, to change. It as well could change their ability to participate in normal daily life, and those changes are what really impacts the risk. Um, we had someone come through recently who'd had um, they had not been diagnosed with a brain injury, but had had a number of concussions and because of that had a harder time making decisions and his judgment had shifted based on the ability it had previously. And so that would increase risk because it decreases the ability to function. If that That's exactly what they were talking about with CTE okay. is like the types of things that football players and boxers yep. suffer from. Yeah. And it really, it increases impulsivity because it decreases our ability to make appropriate and logical decisions. Not that all decisions are logical, but you know where we're going. Um, let's touch on protective factors real quick while we're still here, because oftentimes they are partnered with a lot of these things that are risk factors. So protective factors are, again, it's not a, a math equation. It's not like you have four risk factors. You need four protective factors. There's The balance is different for every single person, um, but things like positive social support to balance out um, how the person is feeling isolated, right? Uh, effective treatment is super helpful as long as the person's engaged. Effective treatment doesn't matter if the person doesn't want to be there. Um, family or community support, the ability to problem solve, the ability to cope, uh, cultural or religious beliefs can be, again, like I mentioned, a protective factor. And being satisfied in your life can be a protective factor. It's pretty rare that when we can't find a reason to live or a protective factor for someone, um, we've had we've had cases come through where it's really hard. Um, we had a disabled adult recently who just had no one in his life. And this was just before COVID, but he rode the bus and he saw the same bus driver every day. That was his community because that person asked with genuine authenticity how he was feeling. And so it can be, um, it can be someone that isn't necessarily who you think it would be, but is someone that really does care. So some of our warning signs, 
Um, we're going to walk through these, but what I want you to think about when you're, when you were walking through these is we're looking for the shift. We're looking for what is different than the baseline. We're often tempted to look at shifts only in the negative direction. Things getting worse, the person feeling worse, things going badly, more acting out with our younger kids, especially acting out in irritability is a really common symptom of depression and sadness because they don't know how else to handle it. Um, but we want to look for any great shift. So for example, if there is a person who's going along with life, let's say it's a teen, they haven't been wanting to go to school, they have been um, having more sadness, they don't want to do anything, they're not connected to people, and then all of a sudden they're feeling great. They want to have family dinner. They want to hang out with you. They're talking to you and they haven't been doing that for months. That's actually a concern and not in a way where we want to like rush them to the hospital or anything, but it's some, it's something where we want to ask some questions because often when someone makes the decision to die and sets a plan in place, that's a feeling of relief because that's the end. I only have to make it till Sunday. On Sunday, I'm going to do this and then it's going to be great. Everything's going to be fine. So we see in that great shift towards positive, actually the relief of the person making the plan. And so we want to intervene by asking more questions and paying attention to those shifts. It can certainly be a shift to the negative as well, but it's any great difference from their normal. And that's going to be a quick difference within a couple of days. Um, if it happened over six months, no, we're, we're hoping that that's just, you know, either treatment being effective or um, what's going on in their life. Um, we also know that suicidal crisis has happened in moments. It is not something, and even if someone has chronic thoughts of suicide over many years, the, the thoughts of suicide are not happening all the minutes, all the days, all the weeks. It is happening for periods of time and potentially periods of time each day, but it's not, um, we have no evidence that it's all the time, every day, every day, all the time, because we have to think of other things, right? We have to think about going to the bathroom, getting something to eat. Like it, it drops out of our mind for, for moments. So impulsivity obviously makes a moment really dangerous, but our goal is to get something in place to help them cope in the meantime, or you participating. So warning signs, things that you hear, things that you see, um, talking is especially helpful if you hear them saying that they're a burden, if you hear them talking about killing themselves, you hear them say they're having uh, no reasons to live or experiencing unbearable pain, keeping in mind that uh, pain is a psychological factor as well as a physical factor. So think about the, um, I'm sure we've all been in a doctor's office. There's a pain scale on the wall. Um, usually it's like one to 10. Um, think about that like a psychological pain. Like how difficult is it today on a scale of one to 10 versus just looking at the physical. Uh, mood, all kind of the things we see often in uh, teenagers. So keeping in mind as well, we want it to be above and beyond normal teenage behavior, loss of interest, depression, rage, anger, irritability, um, feeling humiliated or withdrawing and having uh, increased rates of anxiety. 
um, behaviors are similar to this as well. So withdrawing fits over here, uh, increased drug use, increased uh, reckless behavior, sleeping way too much or way too little. Um, again, sleeping too much, sometimes teenagers just do because they're growing. Um, so more, more than would be normal. Um, and isolating, and certainly if they're planning any methods to harm themselves. Um, I want to look at situational cues because with youth especially and their impulsivity, there are some situational cues that are really important to watch for. Um, this really speaks to hormones, frontal lobe development in the brain, um, general, general difficulty of being a teenager, um, and kind of that the impulsive components. We we're looking for the combination of something kind of underlying struggle, an acute or, or in the moment stressor, and whether or not they can cope with it. So often with teenagers, these are things that prompt thoughts about suicide if they already have some of those underlying components. So a relationship breakup. They may have only been together a week. It doesn't matter. That psychological pain is real for these kiddos. Um, a recent disappointment, um, disciplinary problems, any sort of alienation from family or culture, being a victim of bullying or assault, a humiliating event can be a really big trigger, um, and then unhealthy peer relationships or changes in peers. Thinking about too, like if the kiddo has had to change schools, um, that can be a really difficult point as well. So we're really looking at these moments as I'm going to keep a closer eye on them. I'm going to ask them some more questions. I'm going to really look at the pain they have in this moment um, and help them understand it and help them manage it versus going, oh, you were only together a week. You only dated that person for a week. You don't really even know and dismissing it. Um, I want us to take a break. Um, stretch your legs. We've been going about an hour. So um, once we are back. Let's see. Oh, no, I'm one more thing first before I break. Sorry. I want to do a couple of comments on self-harm and then we will take a break, I promise. Um, the risk factors are really similar to suicide, a lot of overlap. Um, it's most often related to the ability to regulate, the ability for someone to provide sort of temporary relief for themselves from the psychological or emotional pain. Um, and then there gets to be a bit of a cycle where the guilt and shame associated contribute to that negative affect and the negative buildup, the symptoms increase, they'll self-harm, and then they'll feel the guilt and shame, and they'll kind of go in this circle where it gets to be a continuous issue. Um, again, it can be related to suicide or it can be non-related to suicide. Some of the triggers um, are, are very much the same. Uh, Pressures, pressures and stress often contribute more to self-harm because it has a lower threshold than thoughts about suicide. Um, and I do want to talk about, I'm going to give you a list of kind of different methods of self-harm. Um, if you don't want to listen to that and, and that's too much for you today, go on your break right now um, and then come back in a couple minutes. We're going to take about a five-minute break um, in a minute or two from now. If this is too much, go ahead, go on your break now. Um, but for those of you that um, want to hear 
the different behaviors. It can, the helpful factor is you can watch for these things. It's not just cutting, right? So we do include things like cutting. We also look at burning um, either with, um, with cigarettes, with lighters, with matches, anything like that. Picking at wounds or scars is something to watch for, with, uh, especially with littler kids. If they have um, scratches or scars or spots that aren't healing because they're picking at them, um, we would consider that potentially to be self-harm. Any sort of self-battering, so uh, punching themselves, hitting themselves, slapping themselves, pulling their hair out, um, using uh, hot water or um, scalding. So um, we've seen that occur um, you know, in, in the kitchen area, but also in the shower, if they're taking a really hot shower, a really hot bath, um, being mindful of that and what that can do to their skin. Um, it also includes um, things that are purposeful, um, that look really more like minor injury, suffocating without the intent to die, um, deliberately taking too much medication, but not enough to die. Um, Self-poisoning would be included in that as well. Um, we had a case, I, I don't, it was not too long ago, but um, the girl, she was a preteen, was uh, drinking uh, laundry soap and just drinking um, a little bit every day, which clearly is going to cause physical issues, but that would be a self-harm situation. And it really can be many more things than that. Um, kids are, people in general are very creative. And if they feel like self-harm is something that benefits them emotionally by helping them feel calm, we often see that people feel like they need a reason, a physical or tangible reason to feel as badly as they feel. Self-harm can be something that fills that gap. It could be that they have all these other chronic risk factors and all these horrible things have happened in their life, but they are not tangible to the people around them. And yet a cut on the arm is tangible and it gives them a, a reason to feel like, oh, this is why I hurt. It's because of this. It fills the gap. Okay, let's go ahead and jump back in. Um, I did, uh, took a chance to scan the comments there while, while we were having our break. Um, and someone mentioned uh, piercings as a, a form of self-harm. And there is, um, it's controversial because it is a socially accepted version of body art to both uh, tattoos and piercings. Um, and so we really would look at more closely with that particular person, whether or not that was a, a method of self-harm or a method of um, sort of art and, and reflection for them. Um, I have a lot of transition age youth clients, um, so transition age being that sort of high school to young adult period. Um, and oftentimes um, with the clients that I've seen that have a number of piercings or have started getting tattoos, um, it's their sort of healthy way of coping with past self-harm, their healthy way of doing those things. So it, it really is gonna be person specific. Um, all right, let's jump into how we determine risk. Um, we, these are really the four factors we look at, and I'm going to walk through each one. Um, when we're looking at doing more of a thorough assessment, we try to cover all of these different components. Um, in the next couple of slides, we're going to look at very specific questions to ask, but I want to give you an overview when um, someone else is doing an assessment or a professional is doing an assessment, why we look at these different factors. 
Um, you're of course not the professional, not responsible for doing the assessment, but I think it's really helpful to understand why we ask these things. Um, I recently had a conversation with my 13 year old niece who has had some friends who have been asking about suicide things. And I guess com conversations have come up at her school and her middle school. And we had almost this exact same conversation about, you know, these are the different things we ask. These are the different questions that might be helpful. Um, so it is, there's not too young an age. We really just want to tailor um, our understanding of these things to the kiddo themselves. Um, I think I mentioned earlier, we've had uh, kiddos in our crisis unit as young as eight, um, which is um, too young, in my opinion, of course, it's always too young, but uh, there can be this level of understanding around suicide, um, certainly for our younger kiddos. Asking about suicide is so hard. Um, it's taboo for a lot of people. Um, society has not yet gotten to a point where we really value mental health. Um, I think some people do and some contingents of society do, but it's not an overarching important factor. Um, and um, we could certainly argue about that, but until mental health is really well funded, I'm going to stand on my, on my soapbox about how we don't quite care about it yet. Um, I think people often can feel insecure about, um, you know, we don't want to plant ideas in someone's head, which is a myth. We can't really do that. Um, we certainly don't want to drive someone to suicide. Again, a myth. Um, but really not having a good understanding of how to ask the questions and, and to not feel more confident. Um, I often liken it to um, like middle school sex ed, where the more you talk about it and the more education you have, the more protected you can be. Um, and it's the same thing. Like we just have to blur, we have to say the words and ask the questions and practice to where we feel less anxious doing that when the moment arises. So desire is really that idea that we want to die. Um, do you desire to no longer be here? Um, do you desire to um, somehow be removed from the situation that you're currently in? So questions around desire would be things like, um, have you wished you were dead? Do you want to go to sleep and not wake up? Uh, have you thought about killing yourself? Are you having thoughts about suicide? Have you ever thought about giving up? Um, have you ever tried to harm yourself before? And sometimes you'll have kiddos who come into your home who've had um, previous suicide attempts. So asking that, have you ever thought about suicide? Have you ever harmed yourself before? Will help kind of set you up for success. Intent is when we are going to do something about it. So we can have suicidal desire where we want to die and have no intention to do anything about it. Intent is uh, a bit trickier because it really gets into uh, whether they have a plan or not. Um, they may or may not want to share that with you, of course. Uh, but questions like, when are you planning to die? Have you thought about how you might do that? When you're thinking about suicide, does it feel like you can manage that? Capability is, is our connection to means whether or not in the moment we are both psychologically and physically capable of harming ourselves. Um, do you have access to the items that you've thought about? Have you done anything or started to do anything to end your life? Um, you said you were gonna overdose. What pills would you take? Those kinds of questions. Um, capability 
we tend to underestimate, especially with our younger kiddos, because we don't want to believe that it's possible that a younger kiddo could kill themselves. And it is perfectly possible. We need to be um, aware of those possibilities. I think um, that comes back to the choking game, right? Because it isn't necessarily a suicide forward game, um, but there are a number of similar type games that occur. There's a lot of things on the internet about different ways to kill yourself and kiddos have access to that. Um, buffers are those protective factors. What keeps you going each day? What helped you get out of bed this morning? Why did you get out of bed this morning? What is your reason for living? When we look at reasons for living, that's really a big question, but it's also something that we should be um, wide open about the possibilities for, because reasons for living could be a dog. It could be a fish. It could be that your brother is younger than you and you want to take care of him. It could be that you're having pizza tomorrow. It can be anything. And we want to lean into what those things can be for a person. So let's look at, um, at some of these questions. I know I said a bunch of them, but I also want to read through these ones. And that way you have the PowerPoint that has these questions as well. Um, you can download that so that you have them. Um, Again, they're intense questions. The more transparent we are, they're already thinking about this stuff. The more transparent we are, the more likely they are to talk to us because they know that we are capable of having that conversation with them. We're not going to back down. We're not going to be shy about it. And it's okay to acknowledge that it's scary. When you're sitting with someone and you're talking about suicide, like, this is a really hard topic, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's hard to talk about. I'm kind of scared by it. How can we get help? It's more helpful than to act stoic. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I was just going to say before we look at these questions to reiterate again that having these conversations, research shows, does not trigger someone to take their life or give them the idea that they that they didn't already have in their in their head it would would is that that's true I mean I learned that when I did mental health that mental health first aid when I did that um for you that's one of the things we we learn yep 100 and mental health first aid is actually one of the resources that we'll see at the end of the slideshow because it is great for that Um, the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention has a whole training called Talk Saves Lives. And that, that training is specifically about how research shows that the more we talk about this, the more lives we can save. It's not something that's going to prompt someone to attempt suicide. Um, and yeah, if, if we're asking about it because we've noticed something, it's already there. They probably have more things going on in their head than we can imagine. Here's something interesting. Somebody says, I have a nine-year-old who sometimes shares she wants to go with, be with her grandpa who died a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So when we're looking at that, is are we missing grandpa or do we need to do a risk assessment here as far as... It's going to depend on the kiddo. So, okay. um, and, and that's the question to ask, like, why do you want to go with, be with grandpa? And would you do anything to go be with grandpa? Would you hurt yourself so that you could go where he is and get an understanding of, of whether that nine-year-old would hurt themselves? And if they're saying, well, yes, I would, I would do something to hurt myself, whatever that method is. 
um, because I, I really want to go where he is, then you would want to do a risk assessment. If having that conversation comes down to, I just miss him so much, then lean into ways to remember him um, and see if that helps kind of resolve some of that emotion. Um, kids that age understand generally that when someone dies, they don't come back. Um, whether they can go be with them and what all that means is a little bit uh, trickier for them with their brain development. Um, so really it would just be a space to ask more questions, not an immediate concern, but certainly something to follow through on. Well, a follow-up to that, um, Aaron, same, same family. Um, sorry, the chat's going so quickly. I can't get out there. Um, shoot. Was something about, give me a second. A couple of weeks ago, one of my six-year-olds saw the nine-year-old take a knife from the kitchen and point it at her chest. I did not witness it and learned the day, this the day after. How do I talk to the little kids about what they saw? So my suggestion would be to talk about whether or not that's a safe thing to do um, and really phrase it as a, if this happens again, here's how we're going to manage it. We want to encourage them to have a way to manage when the, that happens. Who are you going to tell? What are you going to do? Remove yourself from the space. Go get a parent or an adult. Um, if there isn't an adult nearby, who do you call on the phone? Um, because we want them to feel prepared for when that happens. We don't want to scare them, but we also want them to do something with an action. We give them an action that helps them feel more in control when that event occurs. We also do want them to remove themselves from that space because we don't want any harm to come to them, of course. Um, and so sitting down with them and saying, okay, you told me that this happened. We're getting, you know, the nine-year-old is getting this kind of help. But if this happens again, let's make a plan. And really having them collaboratively make a plan together would be a, a good idea. I, I would love for you to address this, Erin, if, if mm -hmm. you could. Someone says, it still feels morbid to me to spend more time talking about the possibility of suicide or harming oneself than spending time actually doing what we know are beneficial practices for mental health. Mm -hmm. And that's going to depend on the person, right? One of the reasons that we talk about it so much is because... Um, the person who's already thinking about suicide has all these things running through their brain and it's very isolating. If everyone around you is doing the things that are positive and helpful and you can't think that way because you have this tunnel vision about you know, sadness and suicide and depression, it really feels like absolute tunnel vision and you cannot see these other things as being beneficial. If everyone else around us is doing all these positive, helpful things, it actually creates a a bigger rift between us and them. And so if we have those people who can model those positive things also come to us and talk more about suicide and talk more about these things going on in our head, it connects us to them and helps us actually close that rift so that we're able to do more of the positive things with them. Um, it also may or may not be possible depending on how that person's feeling to do a positive activity. They may just not be able to. And that's a good place for us to do some sort of intervention, make sure that they're doing some sort of um, 
peer support is really fantastic for these kiddos because it gives you a space to feel like you're not alone. We want them to feel like it's okay to talk about these things that yes, are morbid. We're talking about dying. It's unpleasantly morbid, but we want them to feel like they're not the only ones that have it in their brain so that they don't feel like there's no hope, if that makes sense. I think that's, yes, that's, that's helpful because sometimes I think just them talking about it is helpful in that they don't feel like they're just carrying it all them, mm-hmm. themselves and yeah. Right. Um, and like you said, they may not be in a place at that point to practice self-care or whatnot. They kind yeah. of need to process where they're at. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's interesting ahead. when we talk about um, suicide rates across the calendar year, because a lot of times people think that winter or the holidays and Christmas time has higher rates of suicide as of all the calendar months. May and June actually tend to have the highest rates of suicide for all the calendar months. And it's the spring transition. And it beca- and it's because we create a rift. People start going back outside and doing all these fun activities. And someone that has a very severe depression or these thoughts of suicide can't bring them, can't do it. And so they feel so much farther away from healthy. We're in the winter, everyone's hibernating and staying inside. It's like, okay, I can hibernate and stay inside too. It doesn't feel quite so bad. Um, and I think one of our roles as people who are healthy is yes, absolutely model healthy behavior, absolutely encourage them to do all of those things with you, but also come to them a little bit. Yeah. Um, do you have time for another question right now? Please, or do you go for okay. it? Yep. So this, um, person says, I feel that our schools are overly sensitive about suicide now. They see a moderate risk and do things that actually cause more trauma to our kids instead of helping them. Our mental health facilities are like prisons instead of hospitals. Once a kiddo gets sent, they don't want to ask for help anymore because they're Mm -hmm. scared to go back. Mm -hmm. And I know, I think uh, Babs would agree with me with, with Brianna, this was actually almost on the opposite spectrum. The school, when Brianna died, really swept it under the rug. The kids wanted to, in the next fall, keep her locker for her and mm-hmm. whatnot. And the school did not allow that. And they, mm-hmm. they didn't even allow Babs to come and talk to the kids. They, that, uh, they didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. And I think the difference there is going to be that was a suicide, uh, a death, versus a, um, an attempt or a crisis that needed intervention. We, um, within the school systems, I don't work in the school system, so I shouldn't say we, but within the school system, if there's a client or a student in crisis, the intervention is, um, there's a lot that goes into that. Um, if a student has died, however, there may or may not be Uh, much that goes into how we respond. Schools have very specific regulations at the school level, at the district level, um, about how they have to respond to a student that's at risk. That includes a risk assessment, a certain number of people have to be involved in. They have to be uh, evaluated by an outside professional more often than not. That outside professional, if not available quickly, will mean the hospital. it really can escalate very quickly. 
the best way to work with that is prevention, to have a plan in advance. And we're going to talk about this when we get to the mental health hold section, have a plan in advance with the school about what care is helpful for the kiddo and talk through those higher level scenarios so that you know and the kiddo knows what's going to happen at each level. What that does is it allows the lower levels of care to be utilized before the crisis occurs and the, and the kiddo ends up in the hospital. Hospitalization is effective for safety stabilization. It is a place where they will be safe, most likely, not 100%, but where they are monitored, where all these items are removed from that. It is, it is stark and it is unpleasant. It is temporary. It is not treatment. It is just safety. So when they come out of the hospital at the end of that, it really is a misnomer. And a lot of our kids feel this way where they don't feel like anything's changed because it actually hasn't. That's not the point of hospitalization. The point of hospitalization is immediate safety. So that period, that 30-day period, and I'm going on a little tangent, and I'll bring it back in just a second, but that 30-day period after hospitalization is actually our highest risk period, even higher than that immediate beforehand, because hospitalization is only for safety. So preventative care, preventative planning with the school, certainly longer-term sort of uh, engagement in care that creates a safe environment over time is going to be more beneficial. And if uh, a kiddo in your care does end up hospitalized, everything you can do to ensure that there's a follow-up plan and follow-up care right after that, and I'm talking like the week after that at the very most, is vital. Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit more. Um, more Great. In, How are we doing on. on time? We have about 35 minutes, and I know we have several We're going to be parents. just... We're going to be just fine. Um, these have been sitting here long enough that we're just going to leave them there and we're going to go on to the next slide. Um, the one comment I'm going to make on questions is that we want to ask them in a neutral way. Um, for example, if I say, are you having thoughts of suicide? That's a wide open answer. They can answer however they want. But if I say, you're not having thoughts of suicide, are you? The only answer to that is no because I have led you to the answer no. Um, and so we wanna be really open-ended and really careful about how we ask those questions. Okay, let's jump into a few different approaches and a few tips. Um, I like to demonstrate the latter approach because it's super helpful about um, types of intervention. So low risk, moderate risk, high risk, and then who has responsibility kind of for those different things. Family, friends, and peers are gatekeepers. Foster care is a gatekeeper. Once we get past that sort of low risk, then we're looking at mental health professionals. We're looking at crisis services. And our high risk, we're certainly looking at emergency services. We don't ever want to hesitate if there's high risk situation. If there's been harm done, we don't ever want to hesitate to go to the, that level of emergency services. At the end, I'll explain all of our crisis services for the state because we do have um, Essentially, they're walk-in crisis centers. They're essentially an emergency room for mental health without all the medical poking and prodding um, and can be a beneficial option for um, folks who are in mental health crisis. So these low-risk interventions, the things that we want everyone to be doing, um, providing support and affirmation, talking about what's going on, um, 
helping instill hope in them without invalidating their despair. So I realize you're having all of this pain. You told me that you're really connected and you really love your little brother. That I wonder if that gives you some hope to kind of keep going and, and working through this so that you can be there for him. So really creating a space where both are acceptable. Um, we want to help improve and expand their coping skills. If they have a stressor happening and they don't have a way to deal with it, we want to help them learn a way to deal with it. That can be something that you do. That can be something that you en uh, enlist a therapist to help with or another uh, helper person in their life. All are appropriate. Um, we want to help make sure that if there are immediate stressors that um, they aren't able to cope with, that we help them either avoid or minimize them. There's a bully at school. We're going to work on minimizing that bully's presence in this, in this kiddo's life, right? We want to enlist people around them, family, friends, community supports, um, school supports. It, it doesn't matter who it is as long as they're supportive. Um, as an adult, you have a specific role in providing advocacy for these kiddos who may or may not be able to do that for themselves. Um, and then we're going to talk about what a basic safety plan would look like. Some of the other sort of moderate and higher risk interventions, I'll tell you what they are. These are the things that our clinicians and our um, providers are going to do. Um, it's really doing that more thorough suicide risk assessment or um, more could be homicide or self-harm risk assessment, developing a, a more clinically sound safety plan that includes uh, clinical resources and what ties it directly to their treatment. Um, we're going to do counseling on access to lethal means and how to uh, make sure that there aren't lethal means accessible. That could go all the way to the level of doing a, a mental health hold, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Okay, listening skills highly undervalued, super important. So presence alone has been shown in research to be a valid intervention. And what I mean by that is your presence alone with the person as a supportive individual is more effective in, in helping that person um, not attempt suicide than if you were not there. And all you would have to do is be sitting next to them. You wouldn't even have to say anything. So the most important thing, if you don't hear anything else this whole day, is just be present with them because it is incredibly valuable. Um, if you don't feel like you can talk to them about what's going on or if you don't feel like you're equipped to talk about suicide, just find someone else who can. You don't have to do it if you're not comfortable with that, but we need to find someone who can do it. Um, we want to have a, a private place to talk, allow them to talk really freely. Um, if they start talking about things that are kind of scary, that's actually okay. They might really just need to get that out of their head so that they can let go of some of it and not be thinking about it so much. Um, we don't wanna interrupt, of course, good listening skills. Um, we wanna listen rather than talk, of course. Um, if they're reluctant, that's okay. It might take a few times of having these conversations before they're able to be open or kind of more free with you. We really don't want to be the lecturer, right? We're not here to give advice. We're not here to fix the problem. Um, but we do want to maybe reframe it for them, help them see the other sides of it, right? Like I mentioned with the, the little brother hope example, um, we don't want to invalidate the psychological pain, but we want to remind them of these other things in their life that exist that they've told us about already. Um, active listening is 
normal active listening that we use in everyday life, being attentive, non-judgmental, reflecting what you're hearing to them. Um, it's okay if there's just silence. Some people are super awkward in silence. Also, that's okay. Um, but it allows the person to think. It allows both of you to process. It allows everyone to be present and not stressed and not pressured. Um, we're also going to use body language. It's a little, I'll give you a few examples of that because I can't show you necessarily on the video. Um, but leaning in, being closer to them. Um, eye contact is a huge thing. Um, if they're ready to show eye contact, um, if they want to um, have physical contact, if they need a hug, anything like that, really mirroring those things for the person. We also talk about being frank, friendly, and firm because um, just narrowing it down to being direct, being candid. When we're talking about Frank, we're not talking about a person. We're talking about being actually Frank in our conversation, being unafraid, talking about these things very plainly. Um, friendly, of course, being compassionate, being warm, being supportive um, and firm. This conversation is necessary. It is essential. It is imperative. We are going to have this conversation because it is about your life and your life is important. Um, and not letting that go. Okay, so let's talk about safety planning um, and really how simple that can be. Safety planning is our preventative way of saying, okay, when you're in crisis, these are the ways that you're going to try to handle it. Safety planning is shown to work if the person engages it. Um, one of the questions earlier was about um, whether whether or not it's helpful when the kiddo kind of turns safety planning around, like I'm having thoughts of suicide, I need to play more roadblocks, and then I'll roadblocks, and then I'll feel better. Um, those are situations that we would consider conditional suicidality. We call it conditional because they're saying I would feel better, or I would I'm going to have suicidal thoughts in this situation if you don't do what I want. Those are not situations that we would endorse following through on. Um, we had a, a gentleman in this week who um, was saying that he was having thoughts of suicide. We learned he was homeless. My next question to him was, if you were housed, if you had someplace to live right now, would you still be having thoughts of suicide? And he said, no. That gives us an indication of the level of risk. And at that point we say, okay, let's work on these other coping plans, coping skills, and then let's put a longer term plan in place to get you housed. So for this kiddo that's saying, I'm, I'm having thoughts of suicide, but Roblox is the answer. I would say, if you were playing Roblox, would you be having thoughts of suicide? And if he says no, I would say, what about Roblox helps you not have thoughts of suicide? My guess is that it's a distraction. And if he's already used his screen time for the day, I would say, okay, your screen time is up, but I can hear that Roblox is a good distraction for you. What other distractions are we going to try? It's not a choice. We're just going to try different ones. And for that kiddo, we would want in advance a whole list of ideas, not thinking of them in the crisis moment, because generally that's less effective, but thinking of them ahead of time, you know, a day or a week before, like here's 10. Great. So when I ask for more screen time, but I've actually used it, I'm going to start at number one and I'm going to try all of these things for at least 30 minutes 
depending on their age. If they're younger, do, you know, 15 or 20 minutes, whatever. But um, coming up with that list in advance, because it is really difficult to fight screen time. It is so much worse, it seems, than it has ever been, because especially with COVID, our connection to people, um, especially as youth, our connection is screens, it is on the computer. So coming up with all of those in advance is incredibly beneficial. So ideally in our plan, we wanna have warning signs, things that for that kiddo would prompt them to feel crisis. I'm out of screen time for the day. Warning sign number one, uh, coping skills that don't include another person, um, listening to music, art, walking the dog, playing outside, whatever those things are. Um, accounting for good weather, bad weather, inside, outside. Uh, school days, not school days, also helpful. Distractions, things that they can do to really get their mind off of it. Um, people who they can contact for help. And then for you, including the emergency services options, which I'll give you a good list of those in a little bit. Um, because we want to know if, it, if they've tried all of these things and it hasn't worked, we want to know for ourselves as the adult what the next step will be. And then at least run reason to live. And the reason to live can change from day to day or week to week. But continuing to ask that question, okay, but what's your reason today for living? What is your reason today for getting out of bed? Helps connect us to the things that are positive. Um, we all, of course, don't need more things to do in our lives, but a really uh, nice practice if you are able to do family dinners or if you get together at a certain time of day is to everyone take turns listing um, two or three things that you're grateful for that happened that day or things that happened that were positive. It gets us thinking more in that mindset. And if we do that routinely, it becomes easier and easier. Okay, now, what if they don't want to plan? Oftentimes, especially with teenagers, they've been asked a safety plan in the past. They think it's not effective. It doesn't matter. It doesn't work. And generally, if they aren't going to use it, it's not going to work. We can't force them to do these things. But we want to continue to ask and to offer to set up these things in advance so that when they are in crisis, they have a backup. It can be written on their phone. It could be something you do on like note cards, um, I often with clients, we come up with a way to maintain it. So like, let's say you have a box and you put all your things in there. Let's say you have a notebook and it also has positive letters and things. You kind of keep everything together so that you know, like, okay, I'm not feeling great. I'm going to get my notebook. One way that they can use is incredibly helpful. Um, if you have screen limits, of course, make sure it's not on a screen um, because we don't want them to not have access to it. We also really want to look at... Um, Lethal means in the home. So if you have a kiddo who has harmed themselves in the past, making sure that the things that they would harm themselves with aren't accessible um, and just doing that walkthrough of the home and making sure that things are out of reach, um, medications are locked away. If you have a firearm in the home, making sure that the ammunition and the firearm itself is are stored separately, that there are locks um, in many different ways. That's always our goal is to have as many as possible. And then to continue to say, hey, I really hope, I really want to plan ahead. I really want to plan ahead because the more proactive we are, the less events of crisis we will have. And when that person's in crisis saying, okay, we're going to plan ahead so that next time we know what to do or we're ready for this. 
give them a couple of days, come down from the crisis and then say, okay, we're going to plan so that we don't have to go back to the hospital like that. We're going to plan so that next time it's easier for us to manage and it doesn't feel so scary for you. Speaking of the hospital, let's talk about mental health holds. Um, and then I'll tell you some resources and we'll take a few more questions. Um, there is always the possibility that a kiddo could be placed on a mental health hold. What that means is that the person appears to have, ha have a mental illness. And as a result of that mental illness, they're at immediate danger to themselves or others, or they're gravely disabled. Only specific people can write a mental health hold. It's um, police officers, doctors, uh, psychiatric nurse practitioners, licensed therapists. Um, and really, you may hear things like 2765, that's the statute of the law that um, dictates this. Or you might hear 72 hour hold because 72 hours is the, um, the initial period of the hold. The steps of this is um, usually someone's cleared medically first. Um, they would then have a, a behavioral health assessment. If it happens in the community, that initial assessment will happen in the community, and then they will be transferred to a hospital or treatment facility where they will be medically cleared and reassessed. Um, the assessment really is determined whether or not they should be held or if a different type of treatment is helpful. Um, in the assessment, if the evaluator is really um, mindful, they should be asking for collateral information, which is information from other sources besides the client. And that should include you if you were there. Um, we'll talk about how to kind of be prepared for those things. Um, children who are aged 15 or older have the same rights as adults when it comes to mental health, which means that they can consent for their own mental health treatment. And that means that you may or may not have access. If they're aged 15 and up, then the facility is going to encourage them to sign a release of information or a document to ensure that you do have access. They can't require it. So that 15 to 18 period can be especially difficult. Um, and being prepared, we'll talk about on the next slide, is one of the helpful ways to engage that. If the kiddo's under the age of 14, then they should be allowed a guardian to be with them. The only time that that wouldn't happen is if that there is uh, medical things that need to be completed for that person. Um, if they're doing medical treatments that they ask you to step out of the room for. Um, you should be accessible to them throughout the assessment process. The assessor may ask you to step out of a room in case the person um, we usually like to talk to kiddos with the parent and without the parent to see if the story changes at all. Um, if they're not allowing you access to the kiddo, request the social worker on call or requ request the client advocate. Those are the two people that we want to make sure are on your page. Um, all individuals that are on a mental health hold have rights as clients. I included in the documentation that um, was uploaded the full forms. So all the forms that get filled out for a mental health hold, including the client rights, um, so that you can read through and see what that all looks like, see what it is that they're looking for, because that can be really um, helpful if you have a client that's truly at this high of risk to be prepared. Our other, um, our other P words that are really important. So I've said be prepared a couple of times. We're going to be prepared, patient, and persistent. You are not going to stop. The squeaky wheel is the key here. Um, if you have a kiddo that's at high risk and has been hospitalized, have a file, a, a document, a form, a folder, an envelope, whatever, 
with all these, all the past medical records that you can find, include the medications and the diagnosis and any contact information for current providers, have your contact sheet for the caseworker, have your contact sheet for the after hours emergency numbers if the caseworker is not available, calling them obviously right as, as soon as you can, a copy of the foster care contract or documentation that you're the foster care provider for that kiddo is super helpful. Um, and then if you have an especially high risk kiddo documentation uh, in addition to that, um, or with whoever has medical decision making that you are involved for that medical care with the client. Um, having all of those things ahead of time can save you some stress at the emergency room when they're saying, well, we need, we need copies of these things. And you're like, here you go, I got it all. Um, it makes it much easier for the kiddo, but it also can help you get access if they've been uh, declining you access. Being patient is super important. Um, pack some snacks, have some water. Just don't give up because making sure that you are there with them, making sure that you're asking for what's needed, making sure that you are saying they need this help, they need help of some kind um, and not, not giving up, right? That's the persistent piece. Your advocacy may be what gets this client what they need, may be what gets this kiddo what they need and not ever walking away and if they're saying, you know, clinical words at you and big words at you, okay, explain that to me again. I don't understand. And really sticking with the process is going to be the way that that kiddo gets help. It's really stressful. It's very frustrating. Um, Colorado is a client rights state generally. So we have a lean in the, on the side of client rights, which means that things like getting access for uh, a case, if, it's, if you're not the client, is more difficult. Okay, let's talk about some resources. We really want, again, prevention <laughs> sets everyone up for success. The more we know, the better. So we have crisis services within the state of Colorado. There's a 24-hour crisis hotline. There's a peer support line. They also do chat and text. If you have a kiddo who's higher risk, this number should be in their phone. You should make a practice phone call. You should make a practice text. Do it all with them because then if they need it, it's available. Keep it all in your phone too. Um, Colorado Crisis Services will show you where the closest walk-in crisis center is. The walk-in crisis center is that uh, mental health emergency room where there's a clinician standing there waiting and ready to talk to you about what needs to be done. If there's been any medical injury, though, go straight to the hospital. If, we're, if there's not been a medical injury, the walk-in crisis center is going to be your best place to start because they can do that behavioral health assessment without doing all the medical poking and prodding um, and help really set up a plan at the lowest care level as necessary. Um, we want to avoid the hospital if possible just because it really is only for safety. It's not a treatment uh, method. Again, if it's urgent, Call 911, go to the ER. If the client won't get in the car, if the kiddo won't get in the car, call 911. It is always okay to do. We get scared about doing that, but we also know that it can be very necessary. There's also the National Crisis Hotline here at the bottom um, if you're uh, outside the state of Colorado, but um, Colorado Crisis Services and the National Suicide Hotline are answered for the state of Colorado by the same organization. So they will get you to the same place. Um, we have a few other things. So youth mental health first aid is super handy. I think everyone should take it if they work with youth. It is an eight hour course. It can be kind of long. Uh, it's a full day usually, but um, 
incredibly beneficial. Um, I am happy this is my work email and my work phone number. I'm more than happy to answer questions and talk to anyone who wants to run through scenarios or has, um, has had difficulty connecting to, to services. And then there's some trainings both at the um, Suicide Prevention Resource Center and the National Institute of Mental Health. They have a bunch of like short videos that are helpful. So if you learn better that way, um, they're called Spark Talks. Um, that's a really handy place to go as well. Um, and if you're a reader, here are some really helpful books um, about suicide, but also about trauma, trauma stewardship, especially I want to point out that one third from the bottom is about how you manage to, to care for people and care for kiddos when there's trauma involved and, and make it sustainable. So really, how do we care for ourselves when we're caring people, um, which we I know love that you mentioned that we are difficult. actually in the process of planning kind of like a book club around that book, a group. Oh, great. Yeah. It is, that has been recommended over and over to us. So it I'm is glad so that you good. included it. Yeah. So good. And well, and I, I take interns every year and the summer before they start, they always start in August or September. In the summer, I always send them that book. And I'm like, okay, here's your summer homework is you, you have to read this and understand because oftentimes we don't understand, um, where our boundaries are and where our crisis points are until we hit them. And we really um, benefit from being prepared. And this is such hard work. It really is. And no matter how passionate you are, it doesn't change that it's hard. Absolutely. It just helps sustain us for a longer period of time. And yeah. our goal is to, to sustain and support each other and have that really good network. So I will, um, I will end. I want to make sure that we have space for some questions. If there's any questions. Yeah, we still have um, some questions. And I perfect. wanted to remind everyone that all of those resources are in the handouts tab um, of, of the classroom. And later when Lindsay walks us through how to get your certificate, she'll show you where that handouts tab is. Erin, um, what else did you have before we do questions? I just want to leave everyone with this idea. The more curious we are when we're working with these kiddos, the better, because curiosity is what can get us to some of those answers. And um, I really enjoy everyone being curious. So awesome. that is that is where I will end. I'm going to stop sharing and then whatever questions um, would be helpful to cover, we will cover. Yeah. Let me go through some of these that have come in. Um, mm -hmm. Someone says, um, when in my work, you know, with parents, a lot of them share that their child was in a 72 hour hold, but they were given no direction after the hold, no plan of what to do afterwards. And for me, that was a big aha of this class mm -hmm. that that 72 hour hold is really not a therapeutic hold. That is yeah. a safety hold. Uh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Uh, so how do we know where to go from there? So any child that has been on a hold or has been inpatient, which inpatient is our 24 hour services, essentially they're at the hospital, they're at this a psychiatric unit, there should be a discharge plan. Whoever is the guardian of that child is required to be involved in the discharge plan. So if you didn't get one, don't walk away, don't leave, stand there until and say, we need a discharge plan. And that discharge plan should include um, appointments for services, which include therapy or medication management if they're continuing medication. It should also include linking you to services uh, above and beyond therapy and medication if those things are indicated by the hospital. 
So if they haven't given you that discharge plan, which is a piece of paper that includes like the medication, the prescriptions, but also the dates and times of those appointments, don't walk away yet and just say, I need my discharge plan. There's nothing here. Um, what happens often is they put down generic, there's a whole state issue happening around this with hospitals and accountability and CDPHE and it's a whole big thing. Um, but they'll put down some generic information that looks like an appointment and it's not really, which is very problematic. So we wanna make sure those appointments are on there. And then it is the responsibility of the guardian to follow up on those appointments. My suggestion is to call those places, verify the appointments and ask if there's any way to get in quicker. Um, if the client, if the kiddo's on Medicaid, which most of our foster kids are, um, they're actually required to be seen in that follow-up appointment within seven days. Um, and so we can lean on that requirement that we are required to be seen in that seven day window to make sure that we get them in right away. Awesome. I want to follow up on that case we were talking about with the nine-year-old. Um, mm -hmm. Foster mom says that she actually likes going to the hospital. She gets to play mm -hmm. with peers. It's like a vacation. And I've heard this before from other yep. foster parents, um, particularly with kiddos who struggle with um, attachment. Mm -hmm. um, I've been trying to discourage those inpatient stays. Is that yep. appropriate? Absolutely, it's appropriate. So there are certain diagnoses. Attachment is one of those things. Um, it also comes up with personality disorders. Um, but attachment is really the biggest one with kiddos where um, it is it becomes no longer clinically appropriate to hospitalize the client. Um, when we see that occurring, so it's really tough because if they're going to different hospitals, if they're seeing different providers, the foster parent may be the only one that sees the pattern. And so by collecting all of those records and making sure that everybody's talking to each other about it, um, that can help you stay in, in front of those things continuing to happen. Request a meeting with the ongoing provider, the caseworker, um, you know, the teacher, if they're in school, I know it's summer, so that's a little bit different, but get everybody in one room and say, we need a plan so that we can prevent this from continuing to happen. Because even if the kiddo is saying exactly the right things, which we know they learn how to do, that does not mean that they are required to be hospitalized. It may be clinically contraindicated, so against clinical appropriateness to hospitalize the client. And um, as someone who works with chronic suicidality, I have clients who will tell me all the things and I will say, okay, great. What do you want me to do about it? Because they want to go to the hospital. And so we have to have that plan in place ahead of time with all the providers looped in that says, yes, they're gonna say all these things and no, we're not gonna take them to the hospital. Here's the plan. If there's not an alternative plan, then it becomes an ethical issue because a provider isn't gonna to wanna to not hospitalize them because that then puts them at risk as a provider. So getting everyone in the space, making sure everyone knows what's being done and what's being said is incredibly beneficial. Yeah, and I think that reminds me of the tip you gave earlier about the video game. Like mm -hmm. when we have this plan set up that first we're going to try these 10 things, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? That, yep. that might be helpful. Someone says, 
Yeah. Um, in Fort Collins, when someone needs mental health hospitalization, they are often driven by a security guard to the mental health facility, and they never have a mental health worker with them during the trip, mm -hmm. which can be up to an hour. This has been severely traumatic for people I know, and it's worse mm -hmm. when 911 is called and the police are involved. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I know we've we've talked about a case recently where this happened from a school. Mm -hmm. How can we advocate for the children and young adults we care for? So the impact of this type of experience is, is lessened. Yeah. So two things, um, request that someone be allowed to ride with them. I think that that's a, um, it can be really difficult to get that approved, but continue to ask. Um, the other thing that we want to do with, especially our, I mean, Fort Collins isn't rural, but we have some rural areas where it takes a long time to get to a, a, a clinic or someplace where they would be going. Um, set up some options for safe transportation in advance. Um, work on a plan with the school where they call you and you are allowed to transport them. Um, even if a client, so if a client's placed on a hold, you are not going to be allowed to transport them. But if a client is at the level where they require a hold, but agree to voluntary treatment, then you can drive them. So it's knowing kind of what those nuances are that is helpful. Um, the other thing for anyone that's interested, Mental Health Colorado, if you go to their website, which is I think mentalhealthcolorado.com or org or something, but just Google them, they're the only ones. Um, we're currently holding listening sessions a couple of times a month because there's work being done in state legislation about mental health holds, specifically about transportation and how clients are transported safely. Um, and we're really pushing on um, changing some of that legislation to include mental health support throughout the transportation process. Um, and we're leaning into the idea of using peers or those who have lived experience um, because that creates both support and advocacy. Um, and anyone is welcome in those listening sessions. So Mental Health Colorado has uh, the links of where those are um, and your feedback in this process and how looking at what this legislation for fall would be and how we adjust some of those things is very, very welcome. Because the more of us that, the squeakier awesome. we are, Absolutely. the better. Absolutely. Let's do one last question. Someone's yeah. wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more on what an alternative plan would look like or include. Yep. Yeah. So once you get to that moment of crisis, an alternative plan is really difficult, right? Because we're already in crisis. So alternative planning is something we want to do in advance um, and being prepared. So um, when we have a kiddo who has consistent mental health concerns, that is being engaged in, uh, in therapy, either individual or family or group, whatever that could look like, um, medication management, if it's indicated, and then you have that provider in, uh, work with that provider to create um, essentially a safety plan where we're gonna try these different things. We're gonna talk to this, we're gonna talk to this person, we're gonna talk to our therapist. And then you set up with that therapist too, um, ways to get, let's say they're at school and they're having a bad day. We're gonna call and talk to the therapist first or the therapist's backup person. Maybe they have a team they work with, but we're gonna have a contact there that we consult with first before we make any next steps. That allows consistency of care, and that's the person who knows the kiddo the best, right? Because they're the one that's treating them. They can also help inform what's going on, um, and it's it's having services in place for them that are going to be more beneficial. Having 
services in place that address some of the long-term needs. Um, it can also include using the walk-in crisis center. I think that's a really beneficial thing because it's not a hospital. It takes some of that fear and stigma away. Um, and we do have uh, within Colorado, a couple of different um, crisis stabilization units for youth. Uh, I think it's always better to avoid any sort of, it's not a hospital setting, but it's essentially a hospital setting. And so we wanna not use it if, unless we have to, but of course in, those, in some of these cases we do have to. So um, outpatient care, having an IEP or a 504 at school, having all of those services wrapped around the kiddo and talking to each other is really what that alternative plan is gonna be. Awesome. Someone says it'd be nice if a course like this were made mandatory for all foster parents, therapists, <laughs> oh, administrators, you and me CPAs, both. caseworkers. Absolutely. So, I agree. So I'll, I'll take just a second. I, I did a training earlier this week around suicide prevention and mental health for all the sitting judges at the Aurora County, Aurora City Municipal Court. And now we're doing it for all of their staff. And it really awesome. is that we just keep having those conversations. Um, we also are trying to write some legislation that requires suicide risk training for all therapists. Contrary to what you may believe, it is not required. And so we are working at the state level to have that be required for anyone that is doing um, either hours towards licensure as a therapist or is a therapist mm -hmm. um, so that we can all be on that same page. A hundred percent. I agree. Yeah. Aaron, this has been incredible. Thank you so much of course, for, of for all of your information. Um, this was fantastic. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yep. And you guys have the PowerPoint and it does have my work email and phone. So please, if you have other questions, other concerns about situations, um, even if you're like, I don't know, or if you don't want to bother me, please just bother me. I'd much rather you have, um, have the support than feel like you're out there on your own. Awesome.